The objectivity involves a habit of mind and spirit, not the following of external procedures or rules. Put another way, the objectivity lies not in propositions, but in a disciplined disposition. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Mind Matters. Today, for the first time, I'm your host, uh, Lucien Koch, and uh, with me in our virtual studio are Harrison Keeley, Adam Daniels, and Elon Martin. Hello, everybody. So hello. today, we'll talk once again. Yeah. Say hello, everybody. Uh, we got a slight <laughs> delay here, but uh, it's it's workable, I guess. <laughs> so um, today... We're gonna talk again about this wonderful book, uh, The Matter with uh, Things by Ian McGilchrist. And uh, since there are so many chapters in that book, um, we cannot talk about everything. Uh, so we picked uh, chapters 10 to 12 for today, where McGilchrist uh, talks about uh, truth and truth in science in particular. Uh, as well as about the life sciences uh, or this biolo biology, basically, and uh, everything, of course, from his uh, hemisphere hypothesis, um, basically that uh, the left hemisphere has a very different uh, take on the world um, than the right hemisphere. So to just give a quick reminder, the left hemisphere is sort of our abstract uh, representational organ so to speak and it sees the whole world as a representation and tends to break everything down into small particulars and then uh, takes these particulars and constructs all kinds of uh, models with them and basically um, treats everything as the same as every object as as a kind of class or as as uh, something that is not unique but like rather a member of a class and so obviously um, it is important to have this kind of logical like reality chopping kind of outlook but it can also go spectacularly wrong and uh, therefore we need the right hemisphere which tends to uh, view take a whole look at reality and is much more directly connected to reality and experiences the world more as a um, as a as a direct Uh, thing and not so much as a representation and like atomistic kind of way so um yeah with that framework um in these chapters he asks uh, the the timeless question what is truth and uh, in particular what does that mean for science and how science goes about things and also uh what that means for biology which is of course also very important because as we know uh, nowadays um, many biologists tend to view man or uh, humans as machines and uh, from that derive all kinds of um, theories about selfish genes and uh, what have you uh, which can also be like a massive problem yeah so Does anybody want to jump right into it? Sure. Oh, before before I mention though, right at the beginning of the show, I want to direct everyone to Luke's new Substack. Um, what's the what's the URL for the Substack, Luke? Uh, 
LucTalks, L-U-C-T-A-L-K-S, LucTalks.substack.com. Great. So you've got a f- you've got uh, three posts up so far, or well, four, probably four by the time this episode will go up, um, or maybe more uh, by the time this goes up. Um, yeah, and you you talk about a lot of the things that we talk about on the show. So uh, kind of like a a really cool philosophical approach so far. And you've got a you've got a review of um, Dave Berlinski's book. Uh, what's it called again? Is it Human Nature? Uh, hu- human Nature. Yeah. 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 So we'll put the link in the description. I'll recommend that. And also mention, um, we won't be talking about ponderology in this show, but I also started a, a ponderology sub stack. So I'll put that in the show too. So all of our viewers and listeners can subscribe to our sub stacks and, uh, read. Get awesome <laughs> but, stuff. Yes. Get awesome stuff. <laughs> um, but on the subject of, uh, this book, <clears throat> I just want to I want to read uh, just a short little bit that stuck out to me from uh, first from chapter ten. So this is the dealing with uh, the question, "What is truth?" And I read like I read this uh, these chapters several months ago, so I had to kind of um, just skim over them and see which parts I'd highlighted to to refresh my memory on what he what he says about all this stuff. And this one kind of stuck out. So he's talking about the different approaches to truth. Uh, Luke, you all you already introduced kind of the really basic summary of the, the hemispheres. So he relates um, approaches to truth to these hemispheres in this chapter. And so he writes, uh, this is page 396, one of the hemispheric approaches, that of the left hemisphere, aims to close down on truth. The game lasts, while it does so, only because the longed-for close down has not yet happened. Once it has, the game is over. So you search for the truth, you find it, and you're done. But then he continues, that of the other, or or the other, that of the right hemisphere, aims to open up to truth and sees the truth as a never finished seeking after and evolving of something that is disclosed by the very process, which is, uh, which the game of life continues. So this more open-ended, uh, like, you know, journey or, uh, um, you know, path to truth that never closes down, we can... And he kind of relates this, um, you know, to, to some examples, and he expands on on it in this chapter. That, and also in the in the chapter on science, because he says that essentially science should be this kind of open ended thing. It should never be set in stone because it is a process. Um, and any truth, and for for this statement, he quotes some philosophers and some scientists, like uh, like he quotes Whitehead, that you know any truth is always a partial truth and it's always a con- contextual truth. I think I think he quotes Whitehead as saying something like, um, you know, this formula or this equation that the the truth the the scientific way to state things would be that to say not that um, you know this this statement or this formula is true in all cases, but these are the situations in which this formula is true, um, and there. are and not the the situations in which it is not true, you know. So there, that 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 any any scientific truth has to be encapsulated like that, and say this is these are the circumstances in which it is true. And on a more broad um, basis, from the from those two little bits I wrote uh, read, um, it is truth it, it itself is kind of, is for for McGilchrist from a right hemisphere perspective this evolving thing, this evolving truth, because the context always changes and we're always learning new things. And so we can, we can get closer to the truth, 
Um, I, well, now I, th I think I'm representing him, you know, more or less correctly, um, and slightly paraphrasing. We can we can approach the truth, and we can we can get uh, a truer understanding of things, but it's not something that we can ever fully grasp because we are always um, limited by and not even necessarily not even necessarily limited by but we were we are always in a certain context where certain things apply and other things won't apply so it will any any statement of truth that we make if it is true will be limited by that very fact and uh, well there are some places we can go to um, when we get into to science but i just wanted to to state that as as kind of a, a starting point for how he looks at uh looks at the nature of truth well, I think one of the things that most impressed me, particularly in the chapter on science and truth, <coughs> was this uh, distinction that he draws out in different approaches to science between those who are more left hemisphere dominated versus those who might lean more into the right hemisphere approach to science. And one of these big distinctions, and he, he quotes Niels Bohr and Max Planck, so you have some giants in the scientific field who attribute uh, the process of discovery to uh, intuition, imagination, uh, inspiration, uh, impressions, things that are decidedly outside of the, um, the kind of uh, logical uh, strictly causal sphere of, of science that we're so often trained to uh, think of as the scientific method. So um, the, the right hemisphere, if you will, uh, permits for a more um, uh, kind of loose uh, bounds of, of inquiry, if you will, um, that, that isn't so regimented and isn't so tied to absolutes. Uh, so, so there is something about the inquiry that is, um, that, that is by its nature, uh, subjective where, uh, as he describes it, left hemisphere dominated scientists <clears throat> are all about objectivity. So, in, in describing the objective pursuit of scientific truth, uh, they would also seek to, um, to rule out themselves as the observer or anything that would uh, influence what is observed uh, or personal uh, to, to their being. And there is this kind of cold mechanistic approach to their version of objectivity, I think that he he uh, he spells out and says is actually kind of impossible because scientists um, do have assumptions, they do have perspectives, they do uh, come at their their inquiry uh, from a particular um, model uh, or metaphor, whether they acknowledge it to themselves or not. It, it's just part of how they approach their work. It's, uh, what's interesting there is that they're like that view, that view of science as this like objective, you know, in that cold objective analytical thing. I think he makes the point in, a, in, in one of the quotations that he, 
he puts in there that that view itself is a left hemisphere representation. Um, it's not even what those scientists would actually do. Um, I, I can't remember the quote itself, but it's something like in their in their actual practice, there are no scientists that actually do that. And probably, well, you know, there are probably some to, that do it to a better, uh, uh, you know, to a greater degree than others. But all scientists, when they actually do science, they they do all of this right hemisphere stuff that they may not even be aware of. It's kind of like this uh, this schema or this this image they have of themselves that that is in itself like an abstraction that doesn't bear much reality to what sh- to 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 what they're actually doing. And so, like you said, they. Um, the, like the process of science, the, uh, he, he goes into the scientific method and like, there's this myth of the scientific method. It's not actually what people think. It's not like it's this, this purely like AI machine that's going through possibilities and, and things like that, because to come to a hypothesis, the process of coming to a hypothesis in the first place is this immensely creative, um, process where it, you have, it, it's based on the assumptions you have, the, the gestalt view of the situation you have. You're looking at, you're looking at something, some, like some um, some collection of facts and evidence, and there's a process going on in your mind that's, that says, "Well, what what is the be- what is the best explanation for this?" And the hypothesis is in itself a, a part of that process where you're where you're trying to come to a picture, come to a come to an understanding of how this all makes sense, and then that's where the the scientific method proper starts, where you you find the evidence, you test it, you see if that actually works or not. But the hypothesis itself is the is like the creative act. In the in the scientific method, that's based on all those things, like the like impressions and 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 values. It's like you have to you have to be looking for something. You have to you have to be valuing a certain type of of uh, of goal or of um, you have to be you have to have a value for a certain type of thing that you're after when you're when you're engaging in this scientific process. It's not like just oh this is the way things are and this is and this is how they're going to be and duck 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 duck. It's this. It's more amorphous. And even the discoveries themselves can come, um, you know, like in a dream or in a flash of insight. That's an yeah, interesting I'm, part I'm, for his, I, uh, if I, like you were saying, it's, it's an immensely creative process and it's not something that you would, that people generally put science into, uh, as a creative process. It's not thought about as a creative process. And yet, uh, one of the things you're doing, you're taking data. And then you're trying to make sense of it. And how do you make sense of it? You don't just, it doesn't spell itself out to you mm-hmm. in like an A plus or one plus two equals three. It's, it's not there. You have to come up with it. You have to generate it yourself. And the only way to do that is for, by free association, creative thinking, allowing your brain to kind of wander and meander. And it's not, you know, uh, this very strict um, thing, which you know, if it all was just a left hemisphere activity, we wouldn't really be getting very far because without the free association and the creativity, there's nothing to, to give life to uh, any kind of endeavor. But it's an, in, but it's also interesting that the, the, the play between the two hemispheres, how one needs the other, the, the free association needs the kind of regimented drilling down while at the same time, the, the drilling down left hemisphere, the very regimented left hemisphere needs some kind of creativity to give it life. So it's just, you know, it's, it's really cool to, to, to have an example, if you will, of, uh, uh, of how the brain needs itself <laughs> in this kind of a way that, yeah. that makes it all work. 
And then I, I just want to say, you know, um, about the imagination thing, that's, that's actually the pretty well-known or should be well-known. I mean, Karl Popper uh, stretched it a lot um, in, in his book where he kind of comes up with this idea of falsification and, and all of that. And uh, he actually says that, you know, the, the imagination plays a huge part. I mean, you, you first must come up with ideas. I mean, as you said, uh, Adam, um, I mean, data, not only can it be interpreted in different ways, but, you know, you must generate it in the first place. And, and to generate it, you must ask questions and, and come up with ideas and, and all of that. And uh, I think uh, Collingwood even um, uh, made the point that in philosophy, you actually start, you actually know, you know, what you what your result is before you even start, you know, writing down the argument. Um, I mean, that's maybe an extreme example. It's not always like that in science, but uh, uh, in certain ways it is, right? I mean, um, you, you, you have an idea basically, and then you set up, set out and, and drill into the details. Like, for example, you see like, a, you know, a, a ball rolling or whatever, and, and you, you, you observe, oh, it's kind of slowing down and it, it looks kind of regular. So there should be like maybe some kind of mathematical regularity and, you know, and you have this idea and, um, and then you use, you design an experiment maybe and, and, and do all of that. But, um, the scientific method, the, the famed, uh, method, it, I think it's, it's pretty much a myth. Um, uh, most, most, most of the time. And, uh, at best it's an, it's a complete idealization, um, of, of how this process works. And I just want to mention another thing that came to my mind. And that is that, um, there actually isn't that nobody has a, 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 a definition of science. It, it doesn't exist. Right. I mean, many people have tried, but you always run into all kinds of conundrums, you know, when, when you try to define what science actually is. So at the end of the day, um, uh, it's basically like truth seeking, you know, or something very broad, but this could be everything, right? It could also be like, uh, doing deductions in, in everyday life and figuring out, you know, where you left your key or something like that. I mean, so it's, uh, it's really impossible. And, uh, I think that's that's also um, something that the the left hemisphere, you know, kind of thinks that science is is something like really well defined when when in fact um, it it isn't. Um, and uh, you can say it's maybe like an institutional thing, um, but you know it, it doesn't really help. So so I just want to mention that because um, uh, there's this uh, in in today's day and age there's this huge um, admiration for science i mean it's it's kind of like a, a surrogate religion mm-hmm. um and it's 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 kind of good to remember that uh, that it's not even defined you know <laughs> i mean not, nobody even know what it is so to speak um and uh, it's I, I really liked how how McGilchrist, uh, broke that all down and just want to read one quote uh, about objectivity that I really liked, and he says, objectivity involves a habit of mind and spirit, not the following of external procedures or rules. Put another way, the objectivity lies not in propositions, but in a disciplined disposition. I really like that because it's, um, you know, it, it doesn't try to define like this scientific method or like this is science, you know, which is impossible anyway, but rather says it's like about the discipline of 
of mind uh, so that you really want to find the truth and 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 go about it right and not like maybe like in everyday life where it's you know maybe only matters to a degree but you really want to to drill down and and to so i, I really like this formulation um and uh, he also says um that's another thing that i think that's in in the chapter about truth that i I'd, i'd like to mention because i i really thought that's an interesting idea as well that he says that truth actually is not has no compelling power so it doesn't automatically um let's say um uh, convince people you know uh, so i mean we all know that you know how people you try to convince someone of something that you believe is absolutely true and it just it doesn't go anywhere um so we always assume that just because something might be true it's automatically convincing and i thought that's a really interesting idea that also um uh, changes maybe the way we we see science right because in science that's also kind of the idea usually that truth just convinces automatically but that's maybe not the case and he says that um it's more something like that we are kind of like actively drawn to truth so it's not something like the evidence that pushes us to it but something that we set out to it's more like what what he says is kind of disciplined mindset kind of thing uh, but something that comes from within basically so i thought that also really interesting well so a few moments ago luke you mentioned um you know how how much science has become something of a religion uh in western civilization how it's uh vaunted and and valued but really i think what we what we're witnessing is the uh how scientism uh which he makes a distinction uh between science and scientism which is kind of like the uh the ideological uh version of science where uh there is this um this determination for absolute answers uh where you know just as we've been saying for the past few moments you know science as as truthfully um pursued is a process it's it's not something that you know you would imagine uh someone like klaus schwab saying and this is the answer and that's it there is no finality um <clears throat> and and that would seem to be the trap among many people who are seeking certainty uh who it's kind of like the authoritarianism or the totalitarianism of science where um the inquiry is so limited and so bound by the conclusions that it that it seeks to uh prove um in order to satisfy certain preconceived ideas about how things are uh or preconceived ideas mm. about where things should go or where things how things should be um that it it is uh it's really a bastardization of the of the the true pursuit of knowledge that one would hope a a, a scientist um is going to pursue uh so that that became a very um it's very liberating to to read this uh his descriptions and to to think well i'm not a scientist i don't have the tools 
the mathematical ability or the research skills that many uh, scientists are trained for, but I can at least attempt to be rigorous. I can at least to I can at least um, attempt to have humility, and uh, which is something he brings up in a number of quotes and, and mentions himself. Uh, the uh, the allowing oneself to be wrong about something, uh, allowing oneself to um, to to know that no matter how relatively truthful a particular uh, conclusion may be, it ain't the whole thing. It can't be. Um, so uh, I think he I think he really gets at what. Uh, what a truly um, scientific mind or thought process looks like or should look like relative to um, the approaches that we're seeing quite often in mainstream science, in science that seeks to promote a particular uh, agenda uh, politically. Most definitely, yeah. I mean, the, the abuse of science is just... Uh... Uh, rampant these days. I think everyone uh, can kind of acknowledge that, and um, and also maybe to to add one point. I think we have talked about this before, but um, how important it is not to um, not to blow or, or let's say not to take certain scientific findings and uh, and construct a whole like metaphysics out of it. Right. I mean, I think that's. Um, that's the big trap um, that, as you said, like most most people would call scientism, but it's it's almost like today in in science it's so embedded in science that it's actually like you could say that science itself, you know, produces this this kind of thing where you you know make huge proclamations about how the universe works or like how you know even in 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 physics which. You know, arguably, is kind of like the king of the sciences and the role model. You know, and uh, for, for for in science, um, you jump to conclusions, right? So you you make generalizations that you say this is universal, right? So this is true, like um, has always been true, will ever be true, and is true in the whole universe. You know, for certain laws, you know, but you, you obviously you don't know, right? I mean, you you can't know. Uh, so that's that's the kind of traps that one should really be aware of, and I think uh, humility goes goes a, a very long way in in that regard. And um, the world would definitely be a, a better place if if science was was very humble in that way. And and also um, with regard to data and and all of that, so it's it's really hard. I mean, there are limit cases, I guess, where you can really say. You know, okay, this is the, you know, almost the absolute truth. You know, at least from our perspective, uh, where you can say, okay, this, this just, you know, we demonstrated something, but in most cases, um, it's actually not like that. And uh, if you look at statistics, for example, I mean, it's it's so obvious, like that. It's you just, you know, change a small parameter and you get a whole completely different result. And and in many cases, it's like that. Um, and uh, and this is something that you know there there doesn't exist a meta rule you know how to set these param parameters like in a in a like in statistics for example uh, 
to get to the truth, right? So you can argue like, should I, you know, look at this, you know, or like uh, age span, you know, or should I like maybe um, put my 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 cut my data, you know, in 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 the middle or like at at this point? And there's there's no rule dictating like that's how you you should do it to to be truthful, right? It's it's decision basically, and the. And there, there are so many things like that, and uh, so we should really be uh, skeptical, also in a way, if uh, science, scientific papers, you know, they make pompous claims in their abstracts or something, or, um, or even like in worse in in press releases and and things like that. Um, we, we should really be skeptical, and uh, not to say that like you know go to the other extreme. So that there is no truth and science is like uh, complete bogus or something like that. I mean, that's not helpful either. But um, but really go about it with a with a as he's, as Magikris said, with a disciplined mindset of like um, really trying to figure things out instead of like seeking this closure thing, Harrison, that you you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I was just uh, when when I was looking over these chapters and. Uh, and listening to you speak, Luke, uh, it made me think about the Big Bang. So I haven't, you know, like like Ilan, I am also not a trained scientist. So I I haven't looked into. Well, I know that Stephen Meyer in his in his recent book, the the God Hypothesis, Return of the God, Re Return of the God Hypothesis, has a a whole section on the Big Bang, and interpreting that as a you know as being a good evidence for um, for like a creator for God. And I, 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 I want to read that because I want to, I want to see, I, I, you know, I looked at this years ago, but I, you know, I wasn't qualified enough to, to remember it or to really understand it. I want to see if in the, in all of the, the evidence and arguments for a big bang, if any of that is predicated on the assumption of, um, like constant laws, for instance, you know, gravity. Because I know there's some relation with, uh, you know, they look at gravity and they look at all the like dark matter and the and the background radiation and stuff. And I know that gravity has to have have something to do with it, right? Because uh, because the bodies of the universe are are uh, attracted by gravity, and uh, so there's got to be some movement going on there. But if if there if if the gravitational constant is in any way essential to to the Big Bang, then the, the big assumption there is that the you know, that the gravity is a universal and eternal constant, and this is one of the things that Whitehead questioned, and that um, and, and like you said about about laws, we have we really have no way of knowing how universal these so called constants are. Now, as uh, in, in our experience, and according to you know the, the limits of our experience, what we can observe in the universe, and and um, the, the like the movement of cosmic bodies that we can observe and and what we can test on the earth there the the like gravitational constant does seem to be fairly constant but if you look at like Rupert Sheldrake um, in his book um, science set free is one of the titles and I I think its other title either in the UK or US was the science delusion I can't remember for sure but science set free is mm -hmm. definitely one of them and he's got this section on the on they wanted gravitational to do it more positively for the US public I yeah. think yeah <laughs> yeah so he's got this section on on the constants in there and he's got the one on gravity and and it's like even now scientists can calculate like the gravitational constant to a very fine degree but there's always 
there, there, uh, there's always error bars. Like there's always a range of values that they get. It's not like they've gotten to the point where they consistently get exactly the same value every single time. Now, of course, one explanation can be, oh, well, our, 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 our tools, you know, our measuring devices just aren't um, good enough yet to achieve that. Um, I think I can't remember if he has a response to that or not, like whether that's a valid concern or not. But he just he brings up the the very um, rational possibility that maybe the the constants aren't constant. First of all, they may be like stochastic in nature. They they may hover around a particular uh, value, and you can never quite nail it down where where it is. It might be probabilistic. But if that's the case, then what's then that opens up the possibility also that that Whitehead um, was pretty adamant about that that we look at the possibility that the the laws themselves evolve over time or change over time, and that so the 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 laws the the constants at a very <clears throat> early stage of the universe may have been completely different and they calibrated in some way, just like uh, organisms calibrate, and so that opens up a whole different. Um, perspective on the so-called fine-tuning of the universe. It's not like, okay, these were all the values that we needed, and then either God or just some um, just some mathematical, physical necessity just determined them to be so, and then then flap. You know, they were they were just set in motion from the beginning of time. That might not be the best way to look at it. Maybe it was this chaotic situation early on and you have all of these con conflicting values that don't quite work towards each other or work with each other. And then who knows, maybe the calibration was very fast, but I'm, I suspect that that might have a, a, uh, that might have implications for looking at the long-term history of the universe and, and how things developed over that time. So even, even with just that, you can't, um, it, it would be difficult to say with certainty, oh, you know, we know this is exactly how it must have happened. And therefore, this is exactly how it did happen. Because, well, first, we weren't there. And second, we don't know if the conditions under which we um, construct our model applied in the, in the same way at all times of our vast and long, you know, um, duration of, uh, of study, the, the period of time that we're looking for looking at. So that's just, that's kind of one of the big, the, you know, the big cosmic examples of the possible flaws with getting attached to this model, uh, you know, to, to any model, and then assuming that, that our assumptions and observations for the, the present time must necessarily extend back in time and apply equally well to, to those initial con initial and subsequent conditions. Um, and so, so that's a big example, and, but the same applies with small examples. So the same will apply in, in any given field or in any given, um, you know, area that you're looking at. You always have to, you always have to take into account the fact that you might not know, um, you might not have all of the necessary data to come to as complete an understanding as possible. Well, we just know that, you know, whenever you're looking at history, um, and I'm talking about history in the sense of like human history, like the, the Collingwood sense of, of human history, there's always going to be things that you just don't know and you can never know. So you can come to a pretty good idea about some things if you have enough enough evidence, but there's always going to be that room for for uncertainty that, oh, well, you know, I don't know if I can say this with any certainty because there are 
there are there are these unknown unknowns. There are the things that we just don't know that we don't know. And then, then there are the things that we know we don't know. It's like, okay, well, we don't have data for this. We don't understand what this what these conditions were like at that time. So how how certain can we be with our um, with our conclusions about this? So there's always this gray area um, when when looking at history. Now the thing that I the thing that I like like um, is when someone comes up with a way, like some very clever individual comes up with a way of kind of um, taking that into account or saying, oh well we we lack that data here, but let's look at the, at this other example and we see how we see how that data is present here and we can see how it affected here so we can come up with a kind of a, a guess a pretty good guess of how it might apply to this situation where we're lacking that kind of data and that's the kind of um, that's the kind of left brain thing that that it's it's left brain but it, it it it's fun and it works and it's fun to see it's fun to see when it works when when you can come up with that generalization that seems to apply and seems to actually bring a level of clarity to a situation that was murky beforehand um, one of the books that I'm reading right now is the one of I think it's the latest one from Peter Turchin um, we've discussed him a couple times on the show um, his ages of ages in chaos book on American history. And then he wrote he wrote he wrote War and Peace and War and Secular Cycles and a bunch of other books. But this one is called Ultra Society, and it's about the the history. It's kind of a a dual history of warfare and the the evo the cultural evolution of cooperation. So he's trying to answer the question of how in the present time, you know, how did 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 huge states that are highly cooperative come about? Like, what was the cultural history, cultural evolution of that? And he points out that, you know, on some questions, I can't remember the specific question, but it's a it's a point that can apply generally. He he points out that okay, here's this question of how do we explain this thing? So it might have been it was something to something related to to warfare and how you know how certain things developed i can't remember exactly what it was but he says you look through all of the the people all the scientists who have tried to answer this question and you come up with like 200 different answers that they give and most uh, it's kind of like the the religion question too it's like well most of these answers are not compatible but not compatible with each other they can't all be true and it turns out that a lot of them just aren't true. You can you can just you can easily falsify them. You know now that now that we have a lot of data. So let's let's look at how we can find something that actually is is testable and actually works when looking at all of this data we have from all of these cultures for the last ten thousand years. With the data we have, let's let's kind of by pro like by process of elimination see what we can come up with for the actual things that explain better than all the other things why this actually works. And so that's that's the the kind of um, of the, it's that aspect of the the scientific method that that I that can be very can be very effective and it's actually it's it's enjoyable to to see it play out and to see the kind of results that people come up with and and like McGilchrist he he can um, if he, taking some things out of context or, or focusing on some certain chapters you might get the idea that he's like like this anti-science kind of guy. Um, but of course, you know, he's at pains to, to say, well, no, that's not the case. Like his, the whole book is the foundation of the book is all of this scientific data on, on the, the hemispheres and all of the experiments and all the observations of how this actually works and how this, how this is actually in, in these certain fields and in these certain, certain areas, 
th this is a better explanation than these other explanations. And um, so, uh, so to, to kind of just summarize a couple points from, from what I was just saying, I think that that in itself, um, it highlights that, that, that contrast between the right and the left hemisphere is how one can be highly flawed, but it's also, it's also necessary for, to, to, it's actually necessary for um, engaging in the kind of thinking that will support that grander right hemisphere vision and to kind of correct it and, um, and mold it or shape it or reinforce it with, uh, with things that are actually true. Because it's very easy to, to look at something and then come up you know, in that creative process to come up with this idea and say, oh, well, this must be the answer. You know, this is, this has got to be the, the, the thing that explains all of this. And that answer can be wrong, right? It's not like being creative automatically makes one right. It's not like, uh, if you have a, a great idea that pops into your head, even if you're an expert in this field, it, it's, that still doesn't guarantee that you're, that you're, you're going to be right. I mean, there's, there's going to be some uh, there's going to be some reason that you came up with that. And there might be, you might be able to track those reasons like, oh, well, you had this understanding of this data and, and that actually is a good explanation when looking at this, at this data, but it turns out it's just wrong because A, B, and C, you know, you, you didn't have an understanding of all of these other bits of data or you weren't, you, you ignored and you weren't you didn't realize you were ignoring, um, you know, these relationships among the data that you were actually looking at. So, um, so as he says multiple times throughout the book, there, there are better and worse explanations for things. And, you know, there is better and worse art, you know, and it, it, when it comes down to the details about why, you know, that's, you know, you'll, that's where you'll get a lot of, of the, the grayness and the, the, the disagreements. But he points out that, you know, that when you look at the limit cases, when you look at the, the extremes, everyone can agree, right? You know, everyone can agree that, um, a, a really objectively bad painting is is worse than you know a really really good one. Um, you might have you might have find some people that don't like the really really Hopefully. good one. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't remember the examples he gives, but uh, the examples he gave sounded pretty solid. It's like, oh well, well he was just giving no, no, he gave course. like absurd examples, like um, about like interpretations of Shakespeare, right? That's one that I think he came back to a couple of times where he says, well, you can have like some pretty crazy interpretations of Shakespeare that he thinks are just wrong, but, and people might disagree with him, but, you know, take, you can't take any given uh, Shakespeare play and say objectively, truthfully, this is about like, uh, you know, the Marxist struggle of the proletariat against, you know, blah, blah, blah. You can come up with absolutely ridiculous explanations that are just, that just, just wrong. And that uh, you can... Uh, you can, with uh, like a very high degree of certainty, say this is not a valid interpretation of Shakespeare. So, yeah, I'll stop. Yeah, I I just maybe want to add something about you know the what you said about science, which I think is really important that you know we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. And I think maybe a good comparison, you know, between like what is wrong or what can be wrong with science today and what good science might be is like, if you think about like a lab technician, right. Who, who just put some, I mean, I don't want to um, insult lab technicians. I don't know a lot about what they do, but that's uh, just <laughs> Go ahead, uh, insult for them. the sake of argument. 
Yeah. Uh, so basically, you just uh, put some some probe, you know, into a machine, you know, and then you write down some numbers, you know, let let's say. And so, I mean, that's basically how a lot of science, so-called, works these days, right? For for many reasons, you know, you gotta churn out papers, you you gotta, um, you know bring in uh, funds and and what have you and it all, and it all needs to be like very mechanized and 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 all of that and so i mean and if you i can really recommend people um to read uh, Werner Heisenberg's um autobiography i forget forgot the title in english and in german it's called der teil und das ganze the part and the whole quite fittingly <laughs> um and uh, it's a uh, and you can like really see how how these pioneers you know in physics how they actually worked and it turns out you know like a big part was just you know heisenberg and wolfgang pauli and all of those guys uh being on a sail sailing trips with niels bohr right because niels bohr had this this little sailing yacht or whatever and they were just going for months you know on sailing trips and talked you know about all kinds of things you know, and, and Heisenberg had his famous, um, you know, developed his famous Heisenberg uncertainty principle actually in some kind of like, um, isolated, um, uh, little house in the, in the, in the mountains where he took some time off because he like was, wasn't feeling well or whatever. And, and had like this inspiration, you know, then and there. And, and it's like, and these guys, they talked forever. And, and when you read his autobiography, it's like, I mean, they talked about like, all kinds of philosophical things and 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 everyday things and mix that with you know like camping trips and and like outdoor stuff and i mean that's that that's kind of like they did science right but it, it doesn't look like like the lab technician science and of course they also had uh you know access to all the experiments they had labs and and what have you but um that was just one part of it and the other part was just spending month you know like uh chilling and and exchanging ideas and um being inspired uh and it's really fascinating to read read that kind of thing and um and many i mean this this was kind of like a, the golden age of physics right and during that time where like a lot of happened and uh, uh and it's such a stark contrast to to what what we're seeing today in in many scientific fields and uh and that's maybe a good way to think about this left brain right brain divide and how you might bring bring those together and and how it how science actually works so to say well that that kind of reminds me of a passage uh in these chapters where mcgillchrist says that um <clears throat> there there's there are discoveries in physics that he finds quite unfortunate to have been neglected by biologists that should biologists think on and uh, reflect upon these discoveries in physics may be all the better for it and um, possibly enable them to uh, come to a different understanding of their uh, area of specialty, biology. Um, so there's this uh, recognition that the sciences have, have been um, unnecessarily uh, separated one from the other um, and while it's understandable that, you know, you'd want to focus and, and get proficient and knowledgeable about your particular area, um, it, it could also be, at least according to McGilchrist, quite limiting uh, because there are 
uh, insights uh, and ideas and um, uh, a kind of expansion of um, understanding that is implied in some sciences that uh, could be, um, and, and according to him should be, uh, assimilated and used to, uh, used to flesh out and, and grow um, one's own uh, researches into biology uh, in, in the example that he gives. So I thought that was interesting. And I thought that, you know, oh, well, who knows? Maybe, uh, you know, maybe it was uh, the, those camping trips that those guys took that, that led in large part to the, to the very fact that, according to McGilchrist, physics is so far ahead in its own realm relative to biology. But then you 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 know you have guys like um, like Stephen Meyer, for instance, um, a biologist among other things, who who does seem to have uh, gone very far ahead, and and putting aside the mechanistic approach to biology uh, that that seems to be so much a part of. Um, you know the common understanding, or the 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 most promoted, you know, neo Darwinistic uh, perspective on biology. So, um, yeah, I would say at least a part of it is that uh, you have gatekeepers, um, you know, in, in various positions at, in academia and and other places that uh, that are very vehement that everything is a nail because in fact they are they are the hammer that's going to uh that's going to insist that their ideas of what is real and what is true are are the correct ones and 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 that those ideas are the ones that you should believe too uh lest you be thought of as crazy uh or um or misguided or or whatever Speaking of biology, uh, Luke, I want I want to hear your thoughts on chapter twelve, the science of life. What? Uh, yeah. What did you take away from those? Basically, that uh, Dawkins was kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, I I think that his main point um, uh, is basically that he rejects this the mechanistic view of the universe in general and biology uh, in particular. So this um, uh, machine analogy uh, that uh, that we are so used to in in biology. Um, he basically says that this is is completely wrong, or maybe not completely wrong, but at least like extremely, extremely narrow in its in its outlook. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and he actually makes a similar point as uh, Collingwood. I think we discussed this maybe in in the show about Collingwood that basically um, physics, you know, as as Ilan said. Uh, uh, gave up on the strict machine model of the universe um even after you know during max planck's time and, and even more so after quantum physics and, and einstein and all of that uh, so 
basically uh, what happened is that physics developed uh, and and went beyond like the the um, 19th century materialism dogma because they had to i mean it's not that you know i i'm not saying that modern physics justifies all kinds of woo woo you know and 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 what ghosts and and so quantum physics therefore ghosts you know <laughs> i mean it's certainly not not that simple um but uh i mean it's clear that this this primitive understanding of of the universe as a machine and uh, every you know made of little atoms and uh, that bounce around and so that just the, the story at least is not as simple as that and everyone was forced to to recognize it uh, but the biologist um and by the way also uh, many philosophers um they hold or held very tightly to this machine analogy uh weirdly enough so that, that it was almost like a, a reactionary backlash against the the modern physics um and uh, so of course in the 30s i think the the new darwinian synthesis was was developed uh, uh right after like all the quantum you know discoveries and all that and it's kind of interesting that the biology just got really stuck into in in this um machine model and treating uh, humans and life in general as as, as machinery and uh, what's what's really weird about this too is that um i mean uh, as mergrist points out it's it's so blatantly obvious that um that you know human beings are not machines and life is is not like mechanical i mean uh, it's it's just so so it stares you in the face right i mean um and and what the the machine analogies uh, analogy proponents did like was basically expanding the the analogy to the point where you know i mean you you can say you know like 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 daniel dennett and 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 some of these people yes the the, the brain and consciousness and everything is just you know it's just a machine working and stuff because we could imagine that hyper complex machine you know that this has these and these attributes and is super complex and blah 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 could like produce this stuff but i mean if you go that far then it's it's not a machine right i mean you cannot it, it doesn't have anything to do with a car or even with a computer it's it's just uh, over like the anal analogy has just run its its course right uh and and isn't isn't useful anymore and that's a good point i think that McGilchrist makes and and not everything of of that is new i mean they he cites lots of people who have uh, criticized this this very approach to to biology but i think he he brings it together really really well and um uh yeah and then offers like a whole array of of reasons why why that just can't can't be right um and uh, he i think in general he has a really a very white hedian view of of things um and he cites a lot forgot the names but one book um uh, process philosophy of biology or something like that um or uh, basically what white hedian interpretation of biology and uh, i think he gets a lot of his inspiration from from the whitehead people and uh, speaks more of processes and and flows and that uh in biology, like everything is extremely interconnected, that you cannot even tell apart 
you know, the, 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 the various parts and their functions often, because it's like so interconnected. Um, and of course that applies to the gene as well. I mean, nowadays it's even questionable, even in mainstream science, whether a gene is actually like a thing, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's not so obvious. I mean, you have the DNA, but you know, it's not so easy to define what the gene actually is. And so right there, you know, like the Dawkins thing gets problematic. Uh, and, uh, but it goes even further that now we know that, um, uh, like gene expression and all of that, it's just extremely complicated. And, and they're like, it's like information that, uh, that, that comes from all around and all and like from all these different systems and, um so yeah so the machine model doesn't work and and also like last point and and that's also not a new point but i think it's an important one is about the language we use um when talking about these things uh, uh i just said you know systems um and and that's just one example of of like how extremely um extremely saturated uh, biology is with this kind of mechanistic language and you always talk about like functions and systems and data input and output and and all of that and as as if it's a computer right or a machine um and and this habit is is really strong and might re obscure like what what some aspects or some crucial aspects about what is really going on there um and on the other hand um um, last point about language um, is that all the biologists still can't help but use um, language from the human realm, right? And even Dawkins and, and like the, the diehard, like materialists, atheists kind of people who, who are biologists, they always talk about, you know, this gene wants to do that and uh, plans to do this and uh, the, its purpose is for that and um with that function it, it you know like this system it intends to um blah 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 so they they always use this kind of language from our human conscious experience and basically project it onto a machine model uh which is the only reason basically why it works or why it can yeah. be convincing you know, because um, if you say like, um, oh, a selfish gene, you know, it 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 compel it convinces the organism, you know, to I don't know, lay an egg in another bird's nest or whatever. And I mean, that's kind of like you can kind of understand, right? You you imagine like, oh yes, the gene. I mean, it kind of convinces like you know the uh, someone, and it's it's all from the from the human realm, right? And and maybe that's the case, you know, maybe Dawkins is right, but then. It's not a machine, right? It's it's, it's the, the gene is a conscious being, so um, uh, you can't have it both ways, right? But that's what these people try. Yeah, yeah they tr they try to have it both ways by like when, whenever that's pointed out. I'm sure McGilchrist points some uh, quotes some and points this out. Whenever that point is brought up, that oh, well, you're using this like um, agentic agentic language. Um, imputing all of these motives and and propensities to these inanimate things then they'll say oh well you know well they'll even write this in the in the papers themselves oh well sometimes if they're self-aware it's like well, oh well when we use these words we're not actually using them according you know they're just shorthand mm -hmm. for for the things that, that we observe that aren't actually and that but as you as you point out yeah but if you get rid of them 
none of what you're writing makes any sense, right? You 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 realize yeah, that. <laughs> at least it's like totally unconvincing, right? <laughs> right. So maybe you should take this into account and 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 think about it and say, well, you know, maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's a reason in addition to just the fact that you know we're humans and we project these things out onto the world. Maybe there's something more to it than that. And of course, that's what. Uh, um, well one rejoinder to that will be, oh, well, then you're just going back to this animistic belief that everything has has a spirit and, uh, every, <clears throat> you know, that rocks are conscious and things like that. But that's not the only, it's not the only option on the table. Um, just, just read some, uh, read some Whitehead, you know, because for, for Whitehead, all of these inanimate things, I mean, the, they're, the, they are at their very, at their very basic essence, they are feeling things like that they that that they they experience and express values and emotions on a very primitive level so the like a a uh, a, a hydrogen and an oxygen atom you know they like when they get together and they feel nice and stable when they're uh, when they combine to make water you know and it's and it's a it's a harmonious relationship you know but when when some uh when some heat comes along it gets gets the emotions going and they get so uh you know so worked up that they separate from each other and they become this these these two gases um well i'm not sure if i gave a, a totally scientific description of, of what happens there but uh <laughs> it's another process that will separate them but um but that, that that's is that's kind of what he's saying um that in itself is too you know too uh too human, you know, projecting a bit too much of human emotion in there. But in in essence, like that's essentially what he's saying that, that these are rooted in feelings. There's a certain type of feeling that comes. Well, energy is feeling, for Whitehead, that when you when you measure energy, that's the measurement of what he would describe as feeling. The actual experience of energy is is feeling. So when you see inanimate things, when you see energetic interactions and chemical reactions, those are the the um the, the chemical and the physical manifestations of prime uh like uh primal feeling in the universe and then that gets translated up onto you know every le level of of being you have more complex organisms like like mammals and like humans and that that feeling takes a different form and it has to do with different reactions in our in our bodies that are that are felt and then and sensations um, everything comes down to, to sensation and feeling and, and purpose and that there are purposes that things do, that, that, uh, things are attracted to future states, whether it's conscious or not that, uh, so for Whitehead, everything is attracted to a future state, to an attractor and it, and it moves, it's motivated to move towards those various attractors. And depending on different conditions, it may or may not reach that one, or may may or may not reach another one. And uh, so that's what probabilities are. There there are probabilities for which attractor will be most attractive to any given organism, or any pair of organisms, or any group of organisms. And so it isn't it isn't totally inappropriate to use this kind of language in biology or even in physics, because at the root of things, that's according to Whitehead, that's actually what's going on, and that there is there is purpose and feeling even at the, you know, that, that very basic level of, of, uh, of physics, of, of, of physical, you know, energy and particles. Uh, here's a, um, here's a question. Uh, 
uh, if like, so if say like a rock in space, so just like a rock floating in space, uh -huh. right. Is just kind of sitting there. How does it know to move if it gets hit? If it, if it doesn't have some kind of conscious awareness of the laws in which it's supposed to obey. Well, I actually thought about this deeply. <laughs> no, not that, that deeply. But, uh, well, for, for Whitehead, we, we talked, or I mentioned earlier about the, the physical laws, right? And how they develop over time. And this, this kind of, this aligns with uh, Sheldrake. Uh, I listened to a, an interview with Sheldrake recently on Whitehead and on the, on the influence of Whitehead on him. And Sheldrake himself said mm -hmm. he loves Whitehead, but he can't understand a word that he says. So he, he under, like, but whenever he has someone explain Whitehead to him, he, he's like, oh yeah, I to totally, I, yeah, that's awesome. I agree with that. And so there's, there's a lot of similarity and he hadn't, he hadn't even read, if I remember correctly, he hadn't even read any Whitehead or wasn't familiar with his work when he came up with his morpho morpho morphogenetic fields ideas. And so it was only afterwards that people were pointing out the similar the similarities to him. And so he'd look into it and say, oh, wow. Yeah. Like uh, we're saying almost the same things in these areas. So there's this, there's this morpho, well, for like very brief rundown of morphogenesis, like, uh, and the things that white, that Sheldrake will say is that, um, like the more you do something, the more it becomes a habit and the harder it will be to break. So, so he views the, the, and I think that Whitehead actually uses the same language. He calls laws, the habits of, of the yeah. universe. And Sheldrake says the same thing that the, that they're, these are habits. And so habits, uh, and for the basic physical elements of the universe, they're like the, the strongest habits that you can have to the point where you probably, you, you can't really do anything else. Right. So that's why chemistry is so predictable is because these, these different, um, chemical organisms, like the, the, the periodic table of elements, they have their, their character is so, so, um, strongly formed that they only behave in like this. They, they only behave in certain ways all the time, as far as we know, right. As far as, as far as, uh, as we're concerned, they've become habits that are so entrenched over billions of years that, you know, an iron atom is going to act like an iron atom and not like a, you know, a hydrogen atom. And of course that will have to do with, um, with properties, uh, you know, properties of the, of the atom itself. And the same thing goes for subatomic particles. So for like a neutron, you know, neutrons all do the same thing and they always do the same thing all the time. Protons always do the same thing, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, uh, and there are variations, right? So if you look at ele electrons and how they behave, there's going to be these probability clouds and, and, uh, you know, they may be here, they may be there. Um, so there's, there's some, some wiggle room, so to speak, uh, some electronic wiggle room. But, um, so with the rock in space, it's, it's like the, the rock itself, it's kind of, well, for, for Whitehead, you can't, you can't look at the rock itself because the rock is kind of just like a, an arbitrary collection of the minerals, like in the atoms that make up the rock. Um, so you have to look at the atoms, um, that are making up the rock and the atoms that are making up the rock are so used to a interacting with each other and combining and, and, um, and, um, bonding with each other, that they will stay relatively, um, relatively stably combined, you know, in the rock form, but they also know what it's like to, 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 to experience themselves, you know, in the universe with the way that, that the way that things work. It's like, you know, we, um, um, 
so, and that vast experience is, oh, well, when I'm falling through space, you know, I'm, I move, you know, I'm attracted towards this thing and there's nothing I can do to, to get out of it. It's like, I'm just going with the flow. That, that's a lot, that's a lot of what I think it is. It's just going with the flow. That's what, what that's what organisms with v- like, uh, the limit case of consciousness, which is like almost zero consciousness or an almost zero awareness, um, experience is that they just go with the flow of things. Okay. Gravity. I'm, this is where I'm going, you know, with a bit more consciousness, we can say, no, I want to get, I, I don't want to be doing this. I'm going to do something to, to evade gravity a little bit. So we have these little tricks that we can use. I mean, we can't just totally turn off gravity. We don't have that ability, but we can jump, you know, we can devise, instruments to, to let us fly or, uh, you know, to avoid the, to, to utilize, um, gravity or the things like, or atmosphere, or, you know, air pressure or whatever. We can, we can use certain things to avoid it because we're aware of it. The atoms in the rock, in the rock are just going with the flow and that, and that, uh, so they, they've got their bonds that they've formed They're you know, they've got their, their homies in this, in this rock. And then if something strikes the rock, right? Then, then that's an energy, that's information that they're receiving from this strike. So that, that now they've got an option. It's like, oh, well, we were connected and we were, we were fine being just what we were, but we've just experienced this, this energetic like event. And now we have to respond to that energetic event because every interaction, like, uh, I can't remember who it was. He quotes in the book, every interact, every physical interaction is, you know, there's a give and a take. There's both are important. So, so this thing that is striking us, gives us energy. Well, what do we do with energy? Well, in all the previous times where we've experienced this energy before, we react by, you know, splitting. And these are the habits that have developed, been developed by matter over time. And so they're just going along with the flow. They, they only know one thing to do when they get struck by a sufficient force and that's to split. And, uh, and they only know one thing to do when they're in the, in the depths of space. And that's to float, float and follow that flow of gravity to the, to the nearest planet where they can cause a mass extinction event. But that still, uh, leaves the question open of, uh, consciousness because how, how do they develop the habits without some kind of, uh, without some level of consciousness there for which the habit to develop into. Yeah. It's the feeling they like it for some reason. It's like the, 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 with the goals, that's the, every, every, oh, I'll have to think about this, but they've got things that they like and they like different things from other things. And so they, something, something's been influencing them, whether it's that like attractor in the future, it's like, I want to be like this. And, and so that causes their likes to be different. Their, uh, their tastes to be a bit different. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they're different, different atoms will have different tastes for the types of experiences they, they like to partake in. Um, yeah. But I guess uh, it just kind of like came back to say that it's not wrong to give like conscious experience or like to, to have that as like a connotation of, of interactions that things have and the way that we describe how elements interact and stuff. It's not wrong to use conscious language or language, which one attributes to a conscious being to something that is seemingly unconscious for the simple fact that there must be some level of consciousness in order for those interactions to take place or awareness. Yeah. It it implies, yeah, a certain, so what, what you're saying there is that, you know, we can now afford to expand our definition of consciousness or self-consciousness. 
and um, that's freeing. Uh, so there, there's a certain habit, or as Harrison was saying, or a certain pattern of consciousness um, that exists in a rock as opposed to a plant, as opposed to a mammal, as opposed to you know, uh, an even higher intelligence. Uh, so I think that's also what McGilchrist is getting at too. It's that uh, we can afford not to look at everything as a law, but as a as a, a pattern that we're used to that we don't have to strictly adhere to uh, all of the time. We can expand our conception of um, awareness and consciousness and information um, by by the very question of does this exist in some other form or how how might it be influenced by some you know third force or a bit of information that that changes seemingly changes the rules mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. I did want to get back to something you mentioned a little earlier Luke it made me think about the um, the scientists who think of biology mechanistically primarily uh, because, and, and we've talked about this uh, a few times already on the show on the subject of intelligent design. I mean, they haven't been given any better a mechanistic explanation of um, biology than Michael Behe and others have demonstrated through the, the bacterial flagellum and its comparison to an outboard motor of a boat and, and how all of these components uh, are remarkably similar in function in the way that it, it, um, it mobilizes the cell, if I remember correctly. And so, <clears throat> you know, we, we know through mathematics that it is impossible uh, for an, uh, an outboard motor to randomly mutate through all of its uh, constituent parts and assemble itself. There has to be a, uh, an introduction of information of seeing how all of these components can work together to make this a viable working part of a boat. Uh, but the, you know, the, the, the mechanistic scientists and materialists will, will poo poo the bacterial, uh, the flagellum precisely because it, of its, of its very nature, it, it suggests that there has to be some bit of information or, uh, or um, uh, conceptualization as a whole in order for it to, to work in the way that it does. Um, so I just thought that that was kind of ironic that, that they, you know, in, in their habit of looking at everything as a machine, you know, once they, once they're being shown, hey, look, look at how this machine resembles something that humans have constructed, uh, which, which can only have been put together by a human consciousness and, and engineering and tinkering and, and putting things together. Uh, don't you see how that's analogous? Don't you see how that's a good metaphor for how perhaps we were put together in, on some level, in some fashion, <clears throat> by some uh, other uh, source of information, so yeah, just they turn it against them, right? <laughs> and uh, I think the um, 
the, I mean, to, to be like a bit oversimplified, um, the whole intelligence design literature is basically like, um, a, f a footnote, so to say, to the, to the insight that evolution and the, the mechanistic model are just in incompatible, right? I mean, it just starts right there. I mean, if you think in terms of evolution about the world, you know, that thing, living beings evolve and all of that. I mean, machines don't, you know, period. They just don't. So if you, if you try to combine, you know, like evolution with the mechanistic model, like the neo-Darwinists did, then it's just nonsense, you know, I mean, on the face of it, it just can't work. And, um, and in the intelligence design literature, they basically showed that, you know, in, in great detail, why that is exactly. Um, so that, uh, you know, I mean, things aren't assembled, you know, randomly. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's all nonsense. And, uh, and the, But the issue maybe I have a little bit with the with the intelligence design argument. I think Harrison, you you went a little bit into that, or hinted at that um, when you talked about Stephen Meyer. Is actually that in some ways they seem to be really um, married to the mechanistic model as well, right? Mm -hmm. So I think I mean maybe I'm a bit unfair because I also haven't read everything, right? And I don't want to. Um, Uh, you know, uh, take anything away from their great accomplishment in just showing in, in minute detail that new Darwinism just can't work. Um, but, um, you know, we shouldn't go back to the kind of, uh, you know, um, um, pre-Darwin or like, let's say, like um, mechanistic model of the universe that was they around even long before Darwin, right? Um, just with the creator God, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of like the, the, the modern idea when the church was still, you know, had, st had still something to say that was kind of the model. And, and since Descartes basically, um, came along this kind of dualistic model that, uh, we have this mechanistic world out there, but, you know, then, then we have, uh, God, which who like created life and and these, these machines basically and and put the soul in there, you know, in in, in some sense. So that's kind of like the this primitive primitive model that uh, I think won't get us very far. It's it's it feels almost like you know like like kind of a step back to say okay, we have this this machine universe, you know, um, with a big bang and and everything is like. Uh, just mechanical, except, you know, that God created it and, and God created life in it, so to say. I mean, it's, um, I mean, I get the argument, but I, I wonder sometimes you know, whether that's, that will get us any further. And, um, and this sort of white Hidian, um, approach seems to be a bit more fruitful, even though I don't think it's the whole story either, but, um, but, you know we we want to find out what what really goes on right and uh and it could be all kinds of things and if we have our like presuppositions like fixed and just think about the world in in certain ways uh then we kind of get stuck and i think um McGilchrist, um lays this out quite beautifully when he talks about um you know that everything is more like of a flow and uh, and interconnected and uh, the right hemisphere actually sees 
it doesn't see like a duality between my consciousness and the external world. It's it's one, right? It's just one, and uh, and it's in, interlinked and interconnected. And you know, when you talked about the rock doing its shenanigans um, in outer space and getting hit and and whatnot, um, you know, maybe that's another way of looking at it. That you know, we kind of imagine this rock as having like a consciousness that is kind of separated from everything and the, the the rock looks around in space you know and it's like this this rock with this conscious rock and and the world out there right <laughs> but maybe that's just and and that's why it sounds so absurd right when you say like oh but rocks are not conscious right but maybe it's just because we we are so used to thinking in certain ways um uh you know this kind of dualistic um worldview with the, the mechanical universe out there and you know the the god-given soul in there and uh, and the god created life and and it's all neat and tidy and <laughs> left hemispherish um, but maybe it's just not like that and and uh, for example with the intelligence design thing um i mean to be fair most i don't don't think make that argument but many um seem to think you know that that basically god did it right so so mm -hmm. god like programmed the the dna you know like like the computer programmer uh but uh, there are like other options on the table as you said before i mean there, there could be like teleology involved i mean uh, maybe like the information assembles because different all kinds of different things cooperate towards like a, a goal that they're attracted by you know mm -hmm like McGilchrist says, and, and it's also like in line with Whitehead. Um, and uh, yeah, so so th there are many ways to to think about these things and, and how that all might fit together. And I think it's really good to break certain habits of thought from time to time. And and, and McGilchrist, so far I'm really, really enjoying, I'm st I've still not finished the whole thing, <laughs> but I'm really, really enjoying it because I think he's really brilliant at this to... Kind of make you think about stuff in 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 new ways. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add one thing on there. It's it, it's the impression I get from the intelligent design authors too. Now I'm I'm guessing you know there are probably a couple of them that that don't necessarily think this way, but by the arguments that they make and the limits that they place on themselves on what they write, that is the impression that comes across. And I think a lot of them are operating in that in that worldview. And what it essentially comes down to is that they think that life is like, um, you know, that organisms, um, are like extremely complex, like Lego creations, right? They're put together that we've got all these little Lego bits and they're put together in these highly intelligent ways. And that implies that, uh, that a creator must have put the original Lego bits together, right? And whenever there's a new Lego piece that is created, that creator molds the new Lego piece and then puts it into a new Lego creation. And that's the that's the world, that, that according to the intelligent design people, as far as I can tell, um, it's at least the implicit world, is that we're these vastly complex Lego creations, and um, which is essentially mechanical. Um, and so they, they don't... And, Part of that is just by virtue of their operating within the standard scientific framework. And part of that is that they they want to convince the, the mainstream academic, you know, scientific community, look, we follow all of your rules. Mm -hmm. We operate with all the same pre <clears throat> presuppositions. We won't even say that God did it. We're just saying that, that intelligence was involved. And when they do venture out from, from those strictures, 
um, then it does tend to be that, yeah, most of them are Christian and, and believe in a, in a, like a traditional creator God. Um, but they, but when they're doing their science, they're open to say that, oh, well, we don't, we can't argue that it's not scientific to say that, you know, it could be something else. It could be aliens. Um, and so there are other explanations, but I think that those other explanations need to be taken into account. Those other possible, um, explanations. And on top of that, we need to just tear apart the whole mecha uh, mechanical universe um, at the same time. And, but that's a different project, right? And so... Uh, yeah, no, I, you're right. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, it's it's good that you kind of de de come to the defense of, because, I mean, I think they, they're they really brilliant in many ways, the, the what they're doing, the, the ID community. And uh, uh, and as you said, I mean, they, they have a specific purpose with, with their project and it, it fits perfectly, you know, to, to what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was my last thought. Anyone else? Final thoughts? All right, let's call it a night, guys. Yeah. All right, L Luke, did you want to take us out, or should someone? Else? Yeah, yeah, right. And you hosted it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks to my wonderful guests. <laughs> um, so, so thanks everyone for for listening, and uh, I hope you enjoy the show. Um, and uh, check out the Harrison's uh, and my Substack in the links below, if you haven't. And we hope to see you next time here on Mind Matters with a fascinating topic that we're already working on. <laughs>